morning. Please take out your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Last Sunday, you'll remember we covered the first seven, cha- seven verses of this chapter, verses that perhaps on a surface reading seem rather unspectacular. There's a census. Mary and Joseph, uh, they travel to Bethlehem to get registered. And while they're there, they have a baby. And they lay the baby to sleep in a manger, in a feeding trough for animals. That's basically it. It's a passage in which God and the gospel at least seem to be entirely absent. That is, until you just look slightly below the surface, because then you see God's sovereign providence. How he uses Caesar Augustus's decree, decree, right, the census, the the registration, uh, in order to get Mary and Joseph to the town of Bethlehem so that the baby might be born in Bethlehem, so that the 700-year-old prophecy of the prophet Micah, but you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, so that that prophecy might be fulfilled. And so the seemingly unspectacular birth story is actually a spectacular story of God's providence. And also just below the surface, you see the condescension of the Son of God, Jesus. Not only in taking on human flesh, but going even beyond that to be born in what we would consider to be the humblest of circumstances. Born to a working class carpenter. Uh, Born into a family of no significant social status. uh, Born in an animal shelter and laid in a manger. And so the seemingly unspectacular birth story is actually a spectacular story of God's condescension. And then we saw the gospel of God. How Jesus' humility in his birth was pointing to the ultimate manifestation of that humility, how he would humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His birth isn't the last time that he was wrapped and laid down because Jesus was born to die for our sins and then to rise again victorious that we might be saved. And so the seemingly unspectacular birth story is actually a spectacular story of God's gospel. That brings us to our verses for this morning, chapter 2, verses 8 and following. Uh, But this narrative that we have today is quite different from last week's. Like, you don't really have to look below the surface for anything to see God and his work, right? The, the miraculous and the spectacular, the works of God are very clearly evident, are right there for us to see. So let me start by reading the passage, talk about what it means and how we can apply it to our lives. And so look along in your Bibles as I read Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. This is the word that God has for you today. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Point number one, the message. Point number two, the sign. Point number three, the responses. The message, the sign, and the responses. First, let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us now as we study your word. Please be with me as I speak, that the joy of Christ might fill my heart even as I preach. Please be with all those who are listening, uh, soften their hearts to receive your word. But that the Holy Spirit would work among us, that none of us would leave this room unchanged. We pray that you would save those here who are unsaved, that they would be born again through the living and abiding word of God. We pray that you would sanctify those who are saved, that we would be shaped by your word in how we think, in how we act, in how we speak. Uh, We ask all of this to the end that you might be glorified, that you might be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. Point number one, the message. This is a story about a message. I'm sure you're all familiar with uh, birth announcements. Uh, We got one in the mail this past week, uh, this cute little card, uh, pictures of mom and and dad and big sister and big brother with the baby and a little information about the baby. Uh, Essentially, right, this message in our narrative is a birth announcement. Uh, It's uh, an announcement about a birth that just took place. But obviously this is no ordinary birth announcement because this is no ordinary baby. Instead of how long and how heavy the baby is and what time and what day they were born, it's all about what he came to accomplish. Now you might think, well, this is the Son of God. This is God in human flesh. Surely uh, an announcement of a birth this important, it's going to go first to Caesar Augustus or King Herod or the high priest or, or someone significant like that. And if you thought that, it's minus 100 points for you because you have not been paying any attention to this book. Look at verse 8. In the same region, so in this region of Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. 
Bethlehem, the town, is not too far from the city of Jerusalem, and so uh, given the sheer number of sheep uh, that would be required for the sacrifices at the temple, it's not surprising that there would be shepherds out in that area caring for their sheep. The shepherds were, just by nature of their work, they were dirty and rugged and Some have tried to portray them as uh, social outcasts. I think that might be overstating it a bit, but in the very least, right, they were on one of the lowest rungs of the social ladder. Like in terms of power uh, and influence uh, and importance, uh, shepherds were nobodies. You remember the story of Samuel going to the house of Jesse to anoint one of his sons to be the next king of Israel? And Jesse presents the, the sons one by one to Samuel. This one looks kind of like a king. That one looks like, but God says no to each and every one. Seven sons fail the test. And Samuel's like, okay, you got, you got anybody else here? Well, there yet remains the youngest. But he is keeping the sheep. Why was David keeping the sheep? It's because he was the lowest in the pecking order. It's because he was the youngest son. He was stuck with the shepherding duties. But that's to whom God first proclaims the birth of Jesus. Not Caesar Augustus. And perhaps there's some irony here, right? That even as Caesar Augustus is flexing his power, he's counting all the people in his giant empire, he's completely unaware that the king of kings has been born right under his nose. And so it's not Caesar. It's not Herod. It's not the the religious leaders some lowly shepherds who are the recipients of this birth announcement. But again, if you've been paying attention through the first chapter and a half of the Gospel of Luke, this stuff just doesn't surprise you anymore. Whether it's God using an old barren couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, to give birth to John, or uh, using a, a nobody from nowhere like Mary to give birth to Jesus... Or it's Jesus being born in an animal shelter and being laid to sleep in a manger. Like we've seen this over and over again. God's exaltation of the things that man would consider to be lowly and humble. Mary said it best. The Magnificat, Luke 1.52. God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And so it's in keeping with that theme... It's to these lowly shepherds that an angel appears. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, is this Gabriel? The the, the same angel who appeared earlier to Zechariah and to Mary? Uh, We don't know. The text doesn't say. It's certainly possible. What we do know is that these shepherds have the same exact reaction to seeing an angel that Zechariah and Mary did to seeing Gabriel. They're absolutely terrified. Look at verse 9. This is stated emphatically, right? It literally says they feared with great fear. And by the way, I don't know. Never met a shepherd, I guess. But uh, these, these guys are tough and rugged guys, right? The, the, part of the basic job description is you've got to fight off thieves and robbers and wild animals. This is not exactly a, a career for the faint-hearted you remember when, you know, David says, oh, I fought both lions and bears. Like, who's this Goliath guy? I can take down Goliath. I'm not scared of him. I've been fighting wild animals all my life. So hopefully you get a sense. Right? These are tough guys, but they're scared out of their minds. Hope you get a sense of just how 
terrifying the appearance of an angel is. And we're not talking about chubby little babies in cloth diapers, right? Chilling on clouds. This is the same awesome being that struck down 185,000 Assyrians in one day, right? This is terrifying. And so just like with Zechariah, and just like with Mary, here with the shepherds, the first thing the angel says is, fear not. Don't be afraid. You're not going to die. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So remember that great fear that you had in verse 9? Now that's going to become great joy in verse 10. Why? Well, because the angel brings good news. Now, the Greek word there is evangelizomai. It's the proper mispronunciation of it. Uh, that's where we get the word evangelize. Right? Everywhere else it's translated, or often in other places, it's translated preach the gospel. Right? And so you can translate that verse, for behold, I preach the gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. What is that gospel? What is that good news? Well, he tells us. Look at the next verse. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. That short phrase containing three descriptions of Jesus That's basically the gospel, the good news, in a nutshell. A savior. We've seen that term come up already in Luke. Remember Mary's Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. You remember Zechariah's Benedictus. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation. For us in the house of his servant David. Well, that Savior, that horn of salvation, he's born today in Bethlehem. But what kind of Savior is he going to be? A political Savior? An economic Savior? A military Savior? No, Zechariah already told us. Remember chapter 1, verse 77? Jesus is going to bring salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. He's going to be a savior from sin. You shall call his name Jesus, Matthew one twenty one, for he will save his people from their sins. But now, we're not looking forward anymore. We're not prophesying anymore. We're not, we're not talking about the future tense anymore. That Savior is here, born this day. The Son of Man is now here to seek and save the lost. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world, born this day to save sinners. A Savior who is Christ. That's also a concept that uh, we've seen come up several times in this book already, isn't it? The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, uh, the one whom the Jewish people were expecting and, and waiting for, the one who would come from David's line and rule on David's throne forever and ever. You may have noticed 
in our study of the gospel so far, Luke's gone out of his way many times to point out Jesus' connection with David. Like, have you noticed that David's name has come up five times already in this gospel? That long-awaited Christ, he is born this day, of course, in the city of David. But he's not just Savior, and he's not just Christ, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And I want you to see why this is so significant. You see, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the the Septuagint, God's covenant name, Yahweh, it's translated some 6,000 times as the Greek title kurios, the Lord. But here we have Christos, kurios, Christ, the Lord. We just stay in this gospel, right? Look through the first two chapters. Luke, Mary, Zechariah, uh, Gabriel, they've all used the term kurios, the Lord, in speaking about God. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone about them. That's clearly referring to God. But now verse 11, two verses later, the angel says, this baby born in Bethlehem, he is the Lord. This baby born this day, Jesus, he is God. I think the clearest way to see this is just look down to verse 26. Jesus is the Lord's Christ. But in verse 11, he is Christ, the Lord. And so we see something like that, and we can joyfully confess, as we did this morning, so likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the fundamental confession of the Christian faith. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now we just spent a few minutes thinking about the the significance of that statement. And I hope you see just how like infinitely deep it is. But we've we've like barely scratched the surface. These shepherds though, I mean they they literally had no time at all to process any of this. Because as soon as the angel says what he says, look at verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. A host refers to an army, and so you've got this multitude of the angelic army. No idea how many that is, but if one angel is absolutely terrifying, how much more overwhelmingly awesome would the multitude of the heavenly host be? And just like with what that one angel said earlier about a Savior who is Christ the Lord, 
Well, this praise from the mouth of the, the multitude, it's also like a gold mine of just biblical truth. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. Uh, the highest there refers to heaven uh, in contrast to earth. And so the angels are ascribing glory to God in heaven for his sending of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They're praising, uh, they're glorifying him for the gospel. First Peter 1.12 refers to uh, the gospel, right? The things of salvation as things into which angels long to look. I mean, think about that. Angels, they're captivated by God's salvation of man. Now, that God sent his son to be our savior. I mean, they're angels who sin, right? Led by Satan, we refer to them as demons. But God never provided a savior for them. The son of God never, like, took on angel to become like one of them that he might pay for their sins. And so the angels who sinned, right, they will receive the just punishment that they deserve. But God did send a Savior for mankind. The Son of God took on humanity to be our Savior. And the angels see that, and they glorify God for that. They rejoice in praise. It's like in the parable of the lost coin. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so in response to God sending a Savior born this day in the city of David, well, the angels proclaim glory to God in the highest. Just a side note here. If angels, who don't even have redemption for their own, if they're so quick and eager to give God glory for his mercy and grace and salvation, well, how much more should we be? But the second half of the verse is a little bit trickier. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, peace there, obviously we're not talking about uh, world peace between nations or even peace among individual people, uh, kind of like a heal the world kind of thing. Uh, No, Caesar Augustus, Remember him from last week? Caesar Augustus, one of the most uh, lasting achievements of his uh, was this unprecedented peace and the stability in the Roman Empire, the the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, right? That would last a few hundred years. Uh, Caesar can bring that kind of peace. But that's not the peace we're talking about here. The peace that we're talking about here is something that can only come from God. This is a peace between God and man. It's the same kind of peace that Zechariah was talking about at the end of his Benedictus. Scan your eyes real quick to Luke 179. He talks about giving light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Well, it's that peace that Jesus came into the world to bring about. Because here's the thing. Natural man is not at peace with God. I'm not just talking about like the raging atheist who like shakes his fist at God. Obviously, that person has no peace with God. 
But, but it's not just like them, like out there, who have no peace with God. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of his glory, that you and I have sinned, that you and I have rebelled against the holy God and his holy word. And so your sin makes you an enemy of God. Whether you're a raging atheist or you are here every single Sunday, whether you're, you're born into a family of idol worshipers or you were born in a church nursery, every single one of us by nature is an enemy of God. But Jesus came to bring peace, right? To reconcile God and man. But look at this. Look at the verse again. This peace between God and man, it's not for all people. This is not like a, a universal, universal salvation. You can see how it's qualified. It's only for those with whom he is pleased. Now that might sound like we've got to do something to please God. But the Bible is very clear that we cannot please God through the things that we do. Some people mistakenly think of God as like Santa Claus. I just have to do enough to get on the nice list and, and stay off the naughty list. But friends, no matter how good you try to be, no matter how much time you spend praying and reading the Bible, no matter how often you go to church, no matter how well thought of you are by other people, there is absolutely nothing that you in and of yourself can do to be pleasing in God's sight. Because there's nothing that you can do to remove your own sin. So that's a bleak picture. That's the bleak reality of humanity. And so we are like those who Zechariah described earlier, who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. But it's against that dark backdrop that the angel declares, Behold, I bring you good news. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That Savior, Christ the Lord, would live the perfect life that none of us ever could, never sinned once. And he would go to the cross and he would die for sin. Not his own, because he had none. He would take the sin of sinners like you and like me, he would take that upon himself and he would die in our place. He would suffer the wrath of God that was due our sins that we might be forgiven. And he died on that cross. But of course he didn't stay dead. He rose again. He proves that the payment for sin was truly accepted. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's by believing that gospel, right, turning away from your old self and putting all your faith in this Savior, Christ the Lord, and what he has done, that you can be forgiven of your sins. If, you, if you've come here this morning and you are not a Christian, I can't see into your heart. I don't know what it is that, that brings you joy or, or keeps you up at night. 
But I do know this for a fact. You have no peace with God. Now, there's a million things that you might try to do to distract yourself from that truth. But you know it's true. Maybe even now, you're, you're trying to like, change the subject in your mind. You're thinking about what you're going to have for lunch or, or what you've got to do this afternoon, whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, your biggest problem is that you have no peace with God. As long as your sin is unpaid for, as long as you're carrying that burden around, you will never have that peace. The Bible is clear. There is no peace for the wicked. But I tell you the good news of the gospel, that there is a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. He's died and he's risen again for sinners like you to reconcile sinners like you to a holy God. So Nicene Creed puts it, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. There is only one way to have peace with God, and it's through Jesus Christ, who reconciles sinners like us to a holy God, who, Colossians 1.20, made peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, the gospel isn't just about having our sins forgiven. It's also about how we are made perfectly righteous. Because on the cross, Jesus takes our sin and we take his perfect righteous record, right? Double imputation. That righteousness is imputed to us and our sin is imputed unto him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And look ahead for a moment to Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. And all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So go back to Luke 2.14. Right? On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Here's the big question. With whom is God pleased? And the answer is Luke 3.22. God is well pleased with his beloved son. And therefore, God is well pleased with every sinner who has put his trust in his son and has thus received his son's righteousness. Brothers and sisters, those of us who have placed our trust in Christ, you are a Christian. When you read Luke 3.22, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Do you realize that because of your union with Christ, because you and Christ are one, because when God looks at you, he sees his son's perfect record, that's in essence talking about you because of what Christ has done, because Christ has united himself to his people forever. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, because God and sinners have been reconciled. Point number one, the message. Brings us to point number two, the sign. 
skipped over verse 12 earlier, and now you'll see why. Because in verse 12, the angel gives the shepherds a sign. And by the way, the, the sign wasn't, you're going to go and you're going to see a baby that's glowing, or he's going to have a halo over his head. That would be a pretty easy way to recognize him. The only problem was that it's not true. This will be a sign for you. This is how you're going to recognize the baby. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, wrapped in swaddling cloths, that's not super helpful. Like every baby who has been recently born in the town of Bethlehem, surely was wrapped in swaddling cloths. It's like someone's looking for you at a Mets game, and you're like, I'll be wearing a blue and orange hat. Not very helpful. But a baby lying in a manger, that's how you're going to know. That's what's going to set him apart. That, That was unheard of even back then, to find a baby in a manger. What's a baby doing in a manger? That's how you're going to identify the Savior who was born. But, but you see the irony of the sign. This is the Savior, Christ, the Lord, the greatest man to ever be born, a man who, two millennia later, we're still talking about him. Easily the most written about and talked about man in human history, the greatest man to ever be born, and the way you're going to recognize him is by his absurdly humble and lowly birth. You're going to find him in a manger. I mean, what, a, what, a, what a seeming contradiction this must have been for the shepherds. Here's Christ the Lord. You're going to find him in a manger. Surely there would have been easier ways to guide the shepherds. Like, why not bust out the star of the wise men or something? But in this sign of his humility, God is making a point. He's making a point to these, the lowest and humblest of society back then, Unto you he is born. Because he came for the humble and the lowly and the despised and tax collectors and sinners and even you, shepherds. I want to picture for a moment that you are one of these shepherds. What can you imagine, right? It's the middle of the night. You're just kind of doing your thing. You're, you're keeping watch over the flock. I mean... Uh, I'd imagine, what do I know about this kind of stuff, but I'd imagine that most nights are, are, are kind of pretty straightforward, uh, uneventful. Sheep are just sleeping. By the way, how do sheep go to sleep? They count each other. Uh, but it's, it's a night like any other night. All of a sudden, you're minding your own business, and an angel appears. An angel tells you that the Savior has been born. And he gives you a sign. This is how you're going to recognize him. And then before you even have a time, to, like a second to realize what's going on, now a whole bunch of other angels appear and they're all praising God. So now, Mr. Shepherd, what are you going to do? You go back to work? Is going to carry on with your sheep watching? I mean, how could you? Notice that the angel doesn't tell them to do anything. There's no command here. But when you hear something that amazing, it compels you to action. If you came up to me after the service, and and just as a statement of fact, you're not telling me to do anything. As a statement of fact, you tell me that Grace Papaya is giving out free hot dogs. You don't have to command me to do anything. I am compelled to action. (laughs) The angels don't have to command the shepherds to do anything. 
They're compelled to action. We don't know if they're like calling the supervisor, getting coverage, or just leaving the sheep behind, whatever it is. But verse 16, they went with haste. They're not wasting any time. Reminds us of Mary. Remember when she went with haste to go see Elizabeth? When the angel told her that Elizabeth's pregnancy was going to be the sign for her? Mary wasn't commanded to go either. She just had to go see it for herself. Same thing here. When you are told a message that glorious, you're given a a sign like that, that your faith might be strengthened, you're not just going to sit around. You're going to go with haste and see the sign. And so you can picture the shepherd just running uh, to Bethlehem. Does anybody know about a baby born in an animal shelter, laying in a manger? Has anybody heard anything? Well, they find Mary and Joseph. And of course, they find the baby laying in a manger exactly as they had been told. And so they knew that is the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And wouldn't you have loved to be like a fly on the wall for that conversation? The shepherds on one hand, Mary and Joseph on the other hand, just sharing stories, amazing stories of those things that had been revealed to them about who this child was. And so the shepherds, their faith is being strengthened hearing Mary and Joseph talk about the the angelic appearances to them and how everything that was revealed to them is now being confirmed in front of their own eyes. And you can imagine Mary and Joseph and their faith being strengthened as they hear about everything that just happened with the shepherds. How'd you know? How, How did you find us? How everything that was revealed to the shepherds also confirmed what they themselves had heard months ago. See how God graciously uses this sign to strengthen all of his children's faith. Point number two is the sign. Well, that brings us now to point number three, the responses. You look at verses 17 through 20. Uh, In these verses we see three different types of responses to everything that's been going on. Uh, And certainly I think there's a lot of practical application in these examples uh, for each and every one of us. The first response, look at verse 17, is making known. Making known. Verse 17, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. But I want you to notice what it is that they're making known. They're not just making known to everyone well, the amazing angelic appearance or making known the, the fantastic stories about the heavenly host. What do they look like? Uh, what do they say? What do they sound like? Surely they could have gotten a book deal or two out of just making known these things. But now look at the text. What they made known was the saying that had been told them concerning this child, which is what? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They're telling people about the Savior. They're telling people about the Christ. They're telling people about the Lord. 
However rudimentary their understanding of the gospel was, however others might have viewed them, uh, the humble and the lowly telling us this, it was said that uh, shepherds weren't even allowed to give testimony in a court of law back then, but they didn't care. None of that mattered. Look at verse 20. The shepherds were glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And so their making known was just like a natural outflow of the glorifying and the praising God that was happening in their hearts. Their hearts just kind of burned within them. They couldn't help it. And that makes these shepherds, if you think about it, the first large-scale gospel evangelists. These are the first people to tell other people about Jesus. Friends, it is true for each and every one of us now, we like to talk about that which is important to us, like that which brings us joy. Whether that's your career, or, or that's your family, or that's your school, or your football team, or your hobbies, or your diet, or your workout, or your gadgets, that which we value is that which we make known. Now, the things that we're passionate about are the things for which we become, well, Evangelists, these shepherds, the message that they had just heard and then confirmed with their own eyes, that message has turned their lives upside down. That message is now the single most important thing in the world to them. And so they can't help but to make it known. It's like the apostles, Acts chapter 4. We cannot but speak of that which we have seen and heard. But now consider this, though they now know that Christ was Savior, well, he's not actually going to accomplish that saving act, right, dying on the cross, for another 30-something years. And so they could look ahead and they can anticipate, but at the end of the day, that's what it was, right? It's, it's an anticipation of something that was still yet to come. We, on the other hand, we, we look back at something that is completed. It is finished. It's a historical event for which we have all the details that we need chronicled for us not only in this gospel, but also in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, Jesus' death in our place, his triumphant resurrection, his glorious ascension, the, the Holy Spirit's indwelling of his people. We can look back and know with certainty that God has accomplished all of these things. In which case, does it not stand to reason, as we see the shepherds glorifying and praising God, making known to anybody who would listen everything that they heard about this Savior, well, doesn't it stand to reason that we, the church, having this prophetic word more fully confirmed, should we not even be more eager to make Jesus known to those who he's providentially placed in our lives. The first reaction, the shepherd's reaction, is making known. The second reaction is that of wonder. Look at verse 18. All who heard it wondered what the shepherds told them. We're going to see this word come up over and over and over again in this gospel. Uh, sometimes you'll see it's translated marveled. 
So when Jesus calms a storm, or Jesus drives out a demon, or, or Jesus heals the sick, uh, the crowds, uh, they marvel and they wonder. What we're also going to see is a repeated theme throughout this book. Marveling, wondering, by themselves, are not evidence of saving faith. Look at Luke 11. He was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. All the people clearly express their disbelief. They slander Jesus. They, they, they test Jesus. So their marvel and their wonder, they're just reactions, natural reactions to the supernatural and amazing happening amongst them, but they are not evidence of saving faith. That seems to be completely lacking. And perhaps, friend, this is you. You've been coming here for weeks or, or, or months or, or perhaps even years. And you've heard sermon after sermon after sermon. And there are some weeks when just the, the sheer power and majesty of the word of God just overwhelms you and your, your heart marvels and wonders. Maybe it's the character of God or, or his attributes or his power or his work or his word or, or the glory of his gospel, whatever it might be. You say, wow, God sent his son to die for sinners. And you're moved and you're touched. And maybe you've even wept and you're in wonder. Surely the Lord is in this place. But that's all that it is. It's a short emotional response. It's a, it's a spiritual high. As soon as you get home, as soon as Monday morning hits, well, everything is back to usual. Nothing's changed. You continue to live for yourself. You continue in your refusal to bow the knee to Christ. Friend, don't do that. God is wonderful. His salvation is marvelous. But unless you come to the end of yourself and cry out to God that you cannot do it on your own, you need a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Unless you bow in submission to him and, and trust him alone for your salvation, all that marveling, all that wonder mean absolutely nothing. But today is the day of salvation. And don't leave this room before you cry out to Jesus. The second reaction we see is that of wonder. The crowds wondered. The third reaction to the gospel message is Mary's. And it's that of pondering. Verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The word there for ponder it literally means to like, put together or to bring things together. You can imagine it's been a crazy nine months for Mary. An angel appears to you out of nowhere, tells you, or you're an unmarried virgin, tells you that you're going to conceive a son. 
and that that son is going to be the son of God, right? The son of the Most High, who's going to rule on David's throne forever. So you go to see your barren relative, Elizabeth, because that was the sign that the angel gave you, and you see that indeed she is pregnant, and her baby leaps for joy, and Elizabeth herself breaks out in like spirit-led praise. Well, then months later, because of the census, you go to Bethlehem, no room for you to stay, but you give birth to the child, and no mother envisions this for her child, but she lays him to sleep in a manger. Then out of nowhere, here come these random shepherds. You've never met them. And they share with you all that has been told to them about this child. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's a lot. <laughs> that's, that's overwhelming. What does she do? She ponders. She's in no rush. She's in no hurry. She's putting together all these different pieces of the puzzle as best as she can. Now certainly she is not going to get everything right. We're going to see that even in this gospel. But I think her deliberate reflection, meditation, pondering, something that I think each and every one of us can learn from in our hectic and absurdly fast-paced society. We're, we're always conditioned to be looking to the next thing. And here she is just sitting back and pondering all of the glorious things that God has said and God has done. Practical application. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to take some time. Maybe it's this afternoon. Maybe it's this evening. Say pause on just the rush of activity, the, the to-do lists and the, the notifications and all that. Just ponder in your heart. Or perhaps even this one verse. Why is this the greatest news in the world? That unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what wonderful news that, that truly is. Father, we pray that you would break through the apathy and indifference of our hearts. Lord, that that wonderful news that the angel delivered to those shepherds on that night would be fresh to each and every one of your children here this morning. That we'd be freshly moved by the glory of the gospel that we would be repentant of ways in which we have robbed you of your glory and that we would look to Christ who has died for all of our sins for unto us has been born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not know you that today would be indeed the day of salvation. That today would be the day that they would believe the gospel and so be saved. We ask all this in the name of our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.